Welcome to the Standard Deviations Podcast, presented by Orion Advisor Solutions and hosted by Dr. Daniel Crosby, Orion's Chief Behavioral Officer and New York Times bestselling author. Each week, Dr. Crosby interviews a fascinating new guest on a range of compelling topics, from literature to psychology to financial wellness. To learn more about Dr. Crosby's behavioral finance work at Orion, visit www.orion.com. Hello, and welcome to the Standard Deviations Podcast. I am your host, Dr. Daniel Crosby, and today I'm joined by Ashley Kwame, who is a marriage and family therapist and a financial psychology educator. We're going to talk about what financial advisors can learn from the disciplines of psychology and marriage and family therapy. Welcome. Thanks. Thanks, Daniel. Thanks for having me. So you're a recent convert to Twitter and our friend, uh, friend of the show, Jess, got you introduced. Tell us about, tell us about that process. Yeah, that's been an interesting um, discovery. So uh, prior to Twitter, social media has not really been uh, my jam. It's not really been a strong suit of mine. It's required a lot of uh, learning. Um, But Jess was really gracious with just helping me understand the benefits just from a business standpoint. Um, Talked a lot about the FinTwit community and just how it is a community. Uh, so she kind of roped me into it and I've been very impressed and, and pleasantly surprised, uh, uh, by it so far. So yeah, it's been good. Yeah. It's not, it's not without its pitfalls, but I will say right. it's been a net, it's been a net positive for me. And it's where I think I've met so many of the listeners of the show and it's where I met you. And, and because of that, because of Jess, we get to have a great conversation today, about uh, two therapists and yourself and myself get to have a conversation uh, about bridging the gap between um, between money and and, and mental health. Yeah. So I was interviewed recently and I got this question and the question was something to the effect of, hey, what if this advisor didn't sign up to be a therapist? You know, they were going through some of my training on communication and connection and empathy and they're like, look, some some advisors did not sign up to be therapists. Do they really need all of this? What would you say to that critique? And and sort of what is the baseline uh, set of therapeutic skills necessary for the average advisor? I think that that's an important question. I love that we're starting with that because one of the things that you know when I try to talk with uh, advisors is that these aren't therapeutic skills that you're learning. Um, Sure, they fall under counseling, they fall under psychology, but these aren't therapeutic skills. These are human skills that that we're learning here. And I won't get on my soapbox about people calling uh, calling them soft skills, Uh, (laughs) but they really are human skills that I feel like in many other um, you know, careers, uh, that we learn, you know, look at sales, um, you look at other avenues with, with business. And, and so there's a level of human skill here that is required for advisors to learn if they want to do client relationships well. So I, I love that because I think there's a false line of demarcation drawn between, you know, to use your hated word, soft skills and hard skills sometimes, And when you look at like the role of a financial advisor, we know from the research that the number one thing an advisor does to add value to their clients' lives is to manage their behavior. And we know the number one predictor of behavioral uptake, you know, whether or not they listen to that that, uh, behavioral coaching 
is rapport and trust. So something like rapport and trust, there's a very straight line between something like building rapport and trust and a financial benefit that accrues to your client. It's silly to to compartmentalize these things into different buckets when they're really so so inextricably woven together, I think. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, I think as clinicians, we have the advantage that these human skills um, these therapeutic skills, we are taught them. It's like therapy 101, right? Mm-hmm. Like how to do empathy, how to do compassion, um, how to present authentically, how to how to have and develop your and cultivate your own self-awareness, right? And, and these are all skills that, you know, up until maybe here recently, that advisors have not they've not been taught. I think some just probably naturally get it and do it better than others, but this is an important skill. These human skills that, you know, are imperative for planners and for advisors to be learning if they're going to be, you know, co-managing client behaviors, if they're going to be building rapport and, and trust here. So I think you're spot on Daniel with what you're saying. You know, another question that I think, uh, you know, deserves some some conversation is when do you make a referral to a mental health practitioner? You know, I've cited the stat on the show before that about a quarter of visits to a general practitioner end in a referral to to a, a mental health practitioner. So someone comes in with something that's ostensibly, you know, physical health related and the GP says to them, like, look, this is anxiety or depression or, you know, whatever it may be. For financial advisors, what does that look like? When should a financial advisor make a referral to a mental health practitioner? Yeah, that's a great question. I I lean into explaining it how I do referrals myself. Um, and in making a referral, first and foremost, I have to know where my comfort level is and where my knowledge base is. Um, so if it is an area where I know I don't have the knowledge around and from a self-awareness or self of the therapist or self of the planner uh, standpoint, I'm not comfortable dealing with that, then that is the time to make to make a referral um, to a mental health practitioner um, or to a financial coach, wherever the referral is appropriate. So, you know, first the advisor or the planner has to know themselves well enough to know what they're comfortable and and what they're not and what they're competent in dealing with, with as well. Yeah. So you have a new course out and you, you shared uh, some pieces of it with me and it looks really fantastic. I want to talk about a couple of those pieces because it's all about bridging these two worlds we're talking about today. And in your financial therapy skills course, uh, you talk about a concept known as circular questioning. Uh, which is a family therapy technique used to get people to consider sort of elements of a problem from a relational angle. So can you give an example of how this would work, where an advisor might use it, and tell us a little bit more about circular questioning? Yeah, absolutely. Um, So with circular questioning, before giving some examples, let's just be clear on what that is. But circular questioning, you know, we are aiming to understand what the relationship is between the individual and their situation, or in this case, maybe their relationship with money uh, or, or their finances. And so 
in trying to better understand what that relationship is, we use or frame our questions in a way that can hit on it or you know, gather the context, um, understand maybe what the rules and boundaries are kind of around that. So as opposed to more linear questions, which are um, pretty standard in financial planning, you're gathering data. It's, Mm. you know, factual information. With circular questioning, we're trying to get our client to think more thoughtfully and holistically in a way of understanding themselves uh, and whatever the behavior or feeling is. So some examples for um, for advisors and how to use circular questioning would be you know, how how does your spending relate to your beliefs about money? How does the way in which you spend um, or the way you save how does that relate to your beliefs about money and finances? Another example might be you know what feelings come up for you when you look at your retirement savings. Or some of the questions, you know, I might ask is what feelings come up for you when you look at your checking account? Uh, but trying to gather just more context and understanding from a deeper standpoint, you know, where this client's mindset and headspace is at. So the linear version of that question would be just some fact gathering, right? Like how much are you spending in your checking account each month or, or something like that, right? Absolutely. But, but you're tying that sort of objective information back to sort of an emotional reality. Okay. You have this information. How do you feel about it? How does it relate to, you know, the money system you grew up in or that your family of origin stuff? Absolutely. And particularly when it comes to, you know, when you look at your retirement account, what feelings come up, Um, you know, as you said, the linear version of that, how much are you saving towards your retirement account, right? The client is going to respond with, you know, an objective number, a factual, right? But that doesn't tell you about how they feel. And it doesn't help to inform or guide where you should be going from a goals standpoint, as opposed to the circular question of what feelings come up for you when you look at your retirement account, right? The numbers on that sheet, right? They might look pretty good, but maybe the client feels really anxious about it. Maybe they feel like it's not enough. Maybe they're worried and knowing what the feelings are behind that will help inform and guide the planning process uh, in in a better, deeper way. So, you know, money is so subjective. A a friend of mine sold a financial technology firm many years ago for for nine figures, right? Great, you know, huge payday. And so I'm, I'm talking to him about this and sort of congratulating him for this. And he says, well, I need to hurry up and start my next company because by the time you pay taxes on it, there's really nothing left. Oh man, wow. And so, I mean, at the time I was, you know, a couple of years out of grad school, didn't have a dollar to my name. And I was like, you know, what, what is he talking about? But yet, you know, for this person, the objective reality was, the objective reality of his wealth was more money than most people will ever see in 10 lifetimes. Yeah. But the subjective reality for this person was, I'm not there yet. This isn't much. I can't do what I want to do. And I've got to hurry and get going on my next venture. Yeah. And it was so disconnected to me 
but it just is what it is, right? I mean, our, our financial, our subjective experience of wealth and money is so different depending on our values and where we came from. And so I think it's easy to assume, oh, this person has X or they have Y, that's enough, that's not enough. But we really have to, in addition to asking those linear questions, ask those circular questions. So here, here's where I think advisors, I, I hear advisors get scared sometimes, right? So they have this great question, like some of the questions you've just shared with us. And then it opens up a can of worms, right? And things get emotional and things get things get messy. Like what what do you you know what do you advise them to do once they've opened this sort of emotional can of worms with one of these circular questions? Yeah, that's that directly ties back to what we were first talking about, which is that is the moment to be bringing out those human skills that. Those are the moments where you demonstrate empathy, you demonstrate compassion. Here's the really great thing about this is that oftentimes you don't have to have the answer or really quote unquote, know what to do. You just need to be the person that is there, that is present. And if you want to have some kind of tools in your tool belt to be able to utilize, reflect back what you hear. Reflection is such a powerful tool that advisors can use where they're not having to solve or do anything with the emotion or or the problem that comes up. They're just reflecting back, right, in a validating way that helps their clients to feel felt um, in those moments. You know, one of the things that, you know, if a client, if a client were to say, well, I feel really anxious, like when I, when I look at my retirement, you, you know, account, that is not the time to say, well, you're saving enough. If you're saving, you know, at a percentage rate of, of X, like that's enough. You should be good. It's a very dismissive statement, uh, you know, from a client standpoint. So lean into those human skills, lean into the compassion, lean into reflection, lean into, um, you know, the empathy piece and, and, and go from there. So I, I, I'm going to reemphasize this because I think it's so, it's so important, you know, you don't have to have the magic words. You don't have to have the solution. You don't have to have the fix. You just have to be a friend. Like you just have to be a good listener. You just have to be there for them. You have to reflect back those statements, try and tie it to something, you know, in your own experience that can cause you to empathize with it. And in fact, you, you actually don't want to rush in, you know, at Orion, we have this five part process that we work with advisors on giving advice that sticks and the first two steps are empathize and normalize, right? It's not till way deep into the process that you run in with sort of the facts of the case. And the tendency, <clears throat> excuse me, the tendency is to want to jump in there and go, oh, you're fine or you're not fine or, you know, you need to save more or you're, you've got plenty. And that's not what people need at that moment. You've asked the circular question. They need to be sat with, comforted, listened to, and not have you rushing in with the, uh, the X's and O's of, of financial uh, reality, I guess. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. I think that, you know, maybe this is something you've heard in your, in your clinical training and work, but, you know, we're taught as practitioners to meet our clients where they are. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think that if planners can keep that perspective and keep that in mind, you know, it can do a world of good, uh, you know, from a relationship standpoint. Yeah. So let's talk some more about meeting clients where they are. 
Uh, your course also touches on the trans-theoretical model. And when I was going back and, and reading over your materials, I was like, this stages of change, as the model is also known, this is something that's so simple, so powerful, and something that, that I just don't think the average advisor is versed in. So can you talk, I have some more questions about sort of the specifics of the trans-theoretical model, but can you talk about sort of the notion of stages of change readiness from a high-level overview standpoint first? Yeah, so the stages of change, first and foremost, not my work. Uh, <laughs> I am not the genius that, uh, that thought of that, but you know, the stages of change work comes from mostly the addiction world mm -hmm. um, from back in the 80s. Um, you know, early nineties talking about and trying to understand why, uh, relapse rates are so high, why inpatient units, you know, are, or at least at that time failing, right. Patients. And so it came out of that space, which I think is important, you know, to note here. However, you know, through the course of, you know, the last several decades, there's application across the board to other disciplines and to other problem sets as well. Um, so some of the language, I like to preface that just because some of the language sounds, maybe uh, you, you get a taste there for coming from addiction. It uses the words relapse, things like that. But um, if we just think about it in terms of just behavior, right? Behavior around money, um, what have you, uh, it's a little bit easier to digest there. So you know, quick overview, we're looking at, you know, the five stages here that clients um, or individuals move through when they are trying to change an undesirable behavior, plain and simple. Um, there's some more nuances there kind of around that. Uh, but from an overview, you know, you have your stages of pre-contemplation, contemplation, preparation, action, and maintenance. Uh, and, Clients come in uh, different phases uh, of a stage process, and it's important for advisors to know and to be able to um, assess or evaluate where their client is coming in uh, in that stage process so that they know how to interact, how to formulate questions, uh, and where and how to implement certain strategies. I, I think certain ideas are just so intuitive when you encounter them and, and Prochaska and Di Clementi's work around stages of change was, was that for me when I first encountered it. And I think advisors will have the, the same response when they just, you know, familiarize themselves with this. I think, uh, you know, at the risk of overstepping here, I think that once you become familiar, whether through Ashley's course or your own study, I think you'll be able to broadly recognize what stage of change your clients are in um, with, with just a little practice. So let's say that uh, a client comes in and you as the advisor understand that they need to make some behavioral changes, but that client you can tell is in this pre-contemplative or, or perhaps contemplative mode. Perhaps they haven't even really thought about changing much. We know that we don't want to shock the system, right, by suggesting sort of a, a change that's too large or pushing them too hard. What can an advisor do in that, say, pre-contemplative, the very earliest stages of change? What can they do to move them toward greater readiness? Yeah, I think so. Awareness, as you said, is the first step. So looking for 
those verbal, nonverbal cues that would indicate that. I think where sometimes advisors get stuck is thinking, uh, and this is true for the therapy world too, we think that when a client calls and comes in, that they're ready to change. Mm. Um, And that's not quite the case. And so being aware of what those early signs are from a pre-contemplation, contemplation state, um, you know, one of the things that advisors, this is the time when you want to, you know, really have a lot of empathy and compassion using reflection. Um, this is not a time for confrontation. This is not the time for the, well, you should do this. Mm. Um, you, you know, if you don't do this, then you know, you're at risk for X. Uh, the, these two stages, this is not the time for, for making those statements. Uh, and quite frankly, I'm not sure where the time is for, for those <laughs> kind of statements in particular, but you know, this is when you use a lot of reflection. So I'm hearing you say that, you know, you're really not sure if you're wanting to make this change and start saving at this rate. Uh, you know, reflect back what you, what you hear, um, you know, Sure, you can highlight maybe the pros and cons, but this is where, again, you have to meet your client where they are. You are on their timeline. It is not the opposite the opposite way here. So there's some, as you said, some education I think that advisors can do and understanding, you know, if they're shifting in their seat, if their arms are crossed, mm-hmm. if they are looking away uh, when you bring up certain, you know, topics, those are all behavioral indicators that might show that a client's uncomfortable and possibly in either that, you know, pre-contemplation or contemplation state. Is there some sort of homework or thought exercise or something gentle you can give a client that's in that sort of stage of change to help sort of catalyze a little greater reflection or a little greater thinking and, and motion towards greater readiness? Yeah, I, I think that, you know, from a question standpoint, you can ask, um, you know, ask your clients maybe to go home and and think about something like, uh, you know, how would you know that you made the right decision, you know, with this? Um, or what other information, you know, would you need to know before being ready to take that change or, or make that change? Um, asking them to kind of get those wheels turning a little bit, uh, you know, in that way, um, or asking, and this might feel uncomfortable for some advisors, but, you know, what would you notice in yourself if you were to, you know, be making this change? What feelings would you be having? How would you know it was the right, you know, the right decision that might be a little uncomfortable and feel again, a little bit more in kind of the therapy realm here, but it's something that can help, you know, activate, as you said, um, from a client standpoint, thinking about the change or making the change uh, in a deeper way. What's the danger, Ashley, in moving too fast, you know, or, or, or trying to accelerate them through the stages of change or, or fast forward past where they're at in the moment? Yeah, I think, you know, pretty simply is that they're not going to make the change or it's short term, right? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, not to use the word relapse here, but that they may, yeah, start saving, right, monthly for, you know, a few months and then they stop, right? And moving too fast can, for some folks, right, it, it's not really proven to show some long-lasting 
the long lasting change, right? If we're trying to create new habits here uh, and for some in the planning feel like that they're trying to create new habits with their clients. And so moving them too fast, it's kind of like the honeymoon phase, you know, um, we can do good for a while there, but if we haven't explored or learned uh, everything that goes into, you know, why we were, you know, doing the behavior before, um, then, you know, we're at risk for falling back into old patterns. Yeah. So you have, I think, both of our highest recommendation to go look into the stages of change research, have that as sort of a mental model in your toolkit to be ready to, to think about that as you advocate for, for positive change in your clients' lives. You know, something um, you talk about in your material is you advocate for advisors being trauma-informed. And I think that that's something, right? She she just she just shivered a little bit, right? So this is uh, I have to give you the the play by play here, but yeah. you know, shivered a little bit. And I had I had a bit of the same response. I'm like, whoa, this is this is heavy, right? You know, when I read this, I'm like, this is heavy. This is serious. Um, what's the case for being trauma informed as an advisor? So. You know, I think that in being trauma informed, you know, I will validate the scariness right, mm-hmm. of that. Um, and I think that when, as a, and this is just culturally, we hear the word trauma, we tend to think big, like really big stuff, heavy, heavy stuff here. But, you know, one of the things that I would encourage, you know, advisors and planners to think about is that it doesn't have to be these big, massive, ugly, awful events in a client's life. You know, we call them capital T traumas and lowercase t traumas. Um, and, and trauma is truly subjective. What's traumatic for me might be completely, you know, just normal or, or, you know, another walk in the park, right. For you. So trauma is really subjective. And I think that that's where that's probably the first starting point to know as an advisor that the things in your client's life that have negatively impacted them or shaped their experiences and thus their feelings and behaviors, right? They might be really deep and they might be big, right? For the, for your client. And so, you know, making sure that the judgment piece is not there of like, oh, well, that's not trauma. The fact mm. that like my client's parents divorced, you know, and I had to live, they had to live with, you know, their single mom who could barely make ends meet, had to work three jobs and in fact, never saw their mom, right? Like, that's not really trauma. Nothing bad really happened. They were safe. They grew up in a house, right? So it's important, you know, first, I think just for, for planners and advisors to know that trauma is subjective. And so whatever it was that negatively impacted your client's beliefs, right? Let them have that. That is theirs. Uh, and their brain may have coded that as trauma uh, just because yours doesn't, doesn't mean that theirs didn't. Uh, so that would be just kind of, you know, first and foremost from a trauma informed place is knowing, um, you know, what constitutes trauma for your clients may not be your definition of it. Yeah. So it's, it's less about sort of having encyclopedic knowledge of every form of trauma and just this broader understanding that what could be a big deal for someone else may not be a big deal to you and vice versa and being, being respectful of that. You know, do we ever have... (laughs) Do we ever have a role? I think of a particular client I had many, many years ago, back when I was still a clinician. I had a client come to me uh, very upset. It was a young, uh, a young woman who had not gotten the car she wanted um, from her parents. And like this was the presenting concern for therapy. And for the life of me, I just couldn't get there. 
you know, because I couldn't, I couldn't see that as truly traumatic. Is there ever a time where sort of giving our own perspective or something like that is warranted? Or do we truly just stay out and let, uh, let, let the judgment, let the, let it be a judgment free zone? Yeah, I think, I think that that's an important I think that's a great question and I, I'm going to answer it in a really unhelpful way. That's a fine line to walk. Yeah. Um, you know, I, for me come from the place of, you know, if that is your experience, then that is your experience. And mm-hmm. it is not for me to judge that that was hard, um, comparative to maybe my own, you know, definitions of what hard should look like. Right. Um, so that's the lens that kind of, I look through things, um, depending upon the severity here, right? So what kind of distress did that event or is that event causing your client, right? That's, I think where maybe the focus should be, um, instead of defining what the trauma is or was, or should be is what level of distress, what kind of impact is it having on the client? So if, your client experienced some kind of negative adverse event. Let's just say they lost their job, right? And maybe now they're working, right? And and they're bringing in income. And so there's no quote unquote need to worry uh, about saving at the rate that maybe they are uh, because they're bringing in income and they're doing fine, right? But the trauma might be that, you know, that was a really hard period in their life. And so, you know, that may be what it is, but the level of distress that it's currently having, right? That would be where the planner and the advisor should should focus more of their efforts on understanding instead of um, understanding maybe why that is a trauma. If that makes if that makes sense. No, that makes a, that makes a lot of sense, and I think we all hold you know advisors, therapists alike. We all hold these values. You know, I have a value towards non judgment and and sort of your experience being your experience, and then. I have, you know, a, a young person come in and say, hey, my parents got me a worse car than I wanted when, you know, when I turned 16. And I'm like, okay, never mind. I'm super judgmental, right? right. Now I, like, <laughs> I have a value for non-judgment, but in this moment, all I can do is judge. And yeah. I'm, you know, I'm just not an effective therapist in this moment. And I think, you know, clients will put these values to the test. And it is a slippery slope to say, well, here's my value, but not with this person. Right. Right. So, right. <laughs> right? Yeah, yeah. So I, I see that. I see that. I think your advice is great. I want to turn our attention to love and money uh, at Orion. We're doing some fun stuff uh, around love and money right now. We've just come out with a, a questionnaire that helps uh, couples understand their money styles better. So we'll be rolling that out. Uh, stay tuned cool. for more information. Awesome. Yeah, yeah, I think you'll I think you'll love it. I think you of all people will love it. Uh, but, you know, I found some in in doing this research, I came across some other research that was candidly kind of blew my mind. Um, according to one study by Haven Life, 20% of adults have secret debts that their partner doesn't know about and over 5% have a checking account that their partner is unaware of. So this was referred to in the literature as financial infidelity, and I'm going to forget the exact numbers but but a but a very large number of people thought that financial infidelity was worse than just regular infidelity, right? Like than, than cheating on your partner. I think it was nearly 50-50. 
So talk to us a minute about financial infidelity and the line between individual autonomy and secrecy. Because I know that, um, like my wife, when, when we got married, her grandma basically told her like, hey, go get a secret checking account because you never know. And, you know, we we because her grandmother was a single mom, she had been abandoned by, you know, the, the father of her child. And like that was her experience. You know, her grandma's, you know, her her wedding gift to her is effectively like, hey, here's a little money. This is yours. Don't let him know that it exists and sort of sock it away. How do we walk this line between individual autonomy and self-protection and sort of secrecy and dishonesty when it comes to financial infidelity? Yeah, infidelity is, man, it's it's a big one that um, I could talk a lot about, but I'm going to try to be concise here with my words. You know, I see a lot of couples who present with infidelity. Um, Some of it might be emotional, physical, and or financial. And I think the stats on that are really interesting just as far as, um, coding financial infidelity is worse. Um, that's very interesting uh, to me. I'll have to go back and, and read some more about that. Uh, but infidelity from, you know, an attachment lens, which is how I practice with couples is from attachment based work, emotionally focused, um, you know, therapy. I mean, it's a betrayal to, mm-hmm to us, right. As the, as the partner involved. And so it is deeply wounding, um, for relationships. Um, I think the financial piece, we have to examine what the partner, um, what the partner's money beliefs are around that. Uh, there might be some partners who have a better threshold of being able to handle, uh, like, Oh, you have this secret checking account. Well, okay. Like, how much money you got in there? Oh, a couple thousand. Oh, what are you going to do with it? Oh, you're just kind of saving it to like go spend on shopping. Cool. Okay. All right. I think Mm. some of that, you know, like, and there are some people out there that would have that reaction, but I think that comes back to, you know, each partner's beliefs and values around money, what it means to them. Uh, what was the, some of their experiences growing up around it? Uh, and, you know, I funnel things down to, you know, cognitive appraisals in meaning, right? What is the meaning that you ascribe from that behavior? So from a financial infidelity, you find out that your partner, you know, has a credit card that has $20,000 on that. Like, what is the meaning there that that speaks to you? Because that's what's going to be the powerful, you know, uh, impact, right? Emotionally and and prog- from a prognosis, right? How the couple will be able to work through that moving forward. Yeah. Very, very interesting from uh, love and money, I, I guess, kind of, kind of place here. Um, you know, one of my sort of go-to sayings is that, is that everyone's story makes sense when you have enough context, you know, you were talking about meaning and getting to sort of the meaning behind the the secret account or whatever it is, you know, given the wife, the, the example of, of, of my wife, right. If, you know, she, she didn't do this to my knowledge, (laughs) but, but if she had on the advice, if she had done this on the advice of her grandmother with enough digging, you would kind of go, oh, like, okay, I get it. Like, you know, your grandmother was left in a tough situation. She had to flee her country and immigrate to America. I mean, it was a whole, it was a whole thing. 
because wow. she didn't have, you know, because she didn't have financial autonomy and she got hurt, hurt by a man. And so that advice makes absolute sense in context. And then you have to say, is her context our context? And so I think if you come across something in your partner's financial life that seems strange or shocking or weird to you, I think that's an invitation to do a little more digging and, and understand that story. Because I think with enough context, it, it will start to make sense. And all of us grew up in these family pods where we had money rules that were largely unspoken. And then we sort of just inherit these without kind of consciously taking them out and examining them. And then you bring them into contact with another person and that person's money scripts and money style may be very different. So anyway, I think it's an invitation to keep digging and look for that meaning you talked about. It is. And, you know, from an autonomy standpoint, uh, <laughs> this sounds, you know, something that I say kind of to my kids and it's simplistic, but I think it, it fits here is that secrets don't make friends. Mm -hmm. um, <laughs> and so if the knowledge and or information that you have or are keeping, if first of, examine, why are you hiding this and keeping this? Right. I mm -hmm. think it's an important question to ask. Why? What is the purpose? What, how is yeah. it, how is it serving you? Um, and if your partner were to discover, you know, this information, what would the impact be? How would they feel? Mm -hmm. um, and, and so if that question is, well, they wouldn't really care, they would be supportive. Well, then why are we keeping that a secret? Yeah. You know, <laughs> so from an autonomy standpoint here, I hear couples say, well, I want my own account or so that I can do what I want. That's fine. There's nothing wrong with keeping some of that separate here. And I know we're not exactly talking about commingling accounts, but that's where some of this shows up, the autonomy, mm -hmm. right? And so it, it's not so much the wanting things separate. It's more about the transparency, I think, yeah. uh, between, between couples. Um, yeah. 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 So one more question on, uh, on the love and money uh, angle. Uh, we know that money is a big source of conflict uh, a research that I looked at found that it was the number one source of conflict in marriages in the first and third years of marriage. I don't know what happens in the second year, but <laughs> in the in the first in the first and third years, it was the number one cause of of, uh, of sort of disagreement. These stats by TD Bank I found illuminating. They found that 36 percent of millennials fight about money every week. 15% of Gen Z, uh, excuse me, Gen X every week and 70% of baby boomers every week. And if you look at those numbers, I mean, I, this isn't the whole, the whole thing perhaps, but you know that the younger you are on average, the less money you have. And so we're, we're finding that uh, among folks who have little money, this is a, this is a huge source of conflict. What's your advice for couples and families that are experiencing regular disagreement around money? Yeah, I think that, you know, in my practice, I see the one to three year mark as being a high time of conflict, financial conflict. Um, and some of that depends on how how much adult life has each partner lived prior to joining together. So, yeah. um, you know, from my experience, I can validate that uh, from an advice standpoint is, you know, reaching out for help through a you know, therapist, someone who is trained in either uh, financial matters um, therapeutically uh, or a marriage therapist, um, not waiting. Um, I am always 
floored at how long couples will wait before they come in for help. Mm. Um, and so in my initial assessments, you know, what I'm asking, like, how long has this, you know, problem persisted in your marriage? And couples are like seven years, 10 years, our whole marriage, you know, and they've been together 20 some years. Um, that is always very sad to me. So my first advice is reaching out sooner than later. Um, you know, there's nothing wrong with going in and just doing some maintenance and just talking about things and learning how to talk about things. Um, money and sex are two of the hardest things for couples to talk about with money being, you know, in, from my standpoint, the hardest, uh, of the two. So it doesn't hurt to go in and, and, and learn how to talk about those things, uh, in a way that can create positive patterns of interaction, uh, instead of negative ones. I think there's two great insights there. One is don't wait so long. So I'm on record as having been the world's worst marriage therapist. I did. <laughs> I was really bad. So I did um, I did very little couples counseling. I did mostly individual therapy. And I thought I was quite a skilled individual therapist and quite bad at the couples counseling. Um, I, I always had a favorite. There we go. But anyway, yeah. uh, <laughs> I'm glad you can own it. Look, I Can't, love that you can own it. <laughs> I haven't done that in a very long time and I probably won't ever again. So we'll, we'll just own it. I always had a favorite. I, I always did. But, you know, when people would come see me in couples counseling, it was almost always when their marriage was just hanging by a thread and you're like, you know, and it was almost it was very often just so they could kind of tick a box to say, look, we tried everything. We even went to a drink and it didn't work. So don't wait so long, I think is the first, you know, the first thing I take from you. And then the second thing is money is the kind of problem that you could bring to a therapist. You know, you talked about sex and money. I think a lot of people, when they think about the sort of the variety of things that would warrant going to a therapist, um, money doesn't perhaps make the list and it, it, it absolutely should. Yeah. A hundred percent. Right. And I get it because most people think therapists don't deal with quote unquote money. Um, and our, look, our training is lacking in that, in the mental health space. That's probably subject for another podcast, um, episode. Right. But, um, you know, it's not, where a marriage therapist can come in, um, and I am partial and biased to emotionally focused therapy here is, is creating and restructuring the patterns, right. On the content, right. The content might be money. Uh, but you know, therapists can help you restructure the patterns of interaction there and how you guys do that, uh, in a healthier, healthier way. So I, I will say this for millennials, um, I see far more millennial couples come in at the start of things. So within that maybe one to five year range, and they're like, hey, we're starting to argue a lot and we think we need help. So, you know, I'm like, yes, this is great. Mm -hmm. right? Like, this is fantastic. So I am starting to see that a little bit more. So um, shout out millennials, uh, millennial couples, uh, which is great. And I hope maybe some of the um, destigmatizing of mental health, uh, is helping with that, but yes, money is a reason to go to therapy. Yeah, absolutely. Well, Ashley, this has been awesome. You've shared so much wisdom with us today. Um, let's, you know, you, you talked about when you met Jess, you got a nice follower bump. Let's bump it again. If people want to follow you on Twitter, where can we follow you? Where can people find your website? 
where can people uh, take part in this course? It's how many hours of CE? Yeah, it's 9.5 hours from the CAFP board. Yeah, absolutely. Um, plus, you get to hang out and learn some really cool things that uh, hopefully are um, helpful, right? And cultivating uh, that client relationship piece. So, and yourself, right? Mm -hmm. Like, how cool is it to like learn about yourself too for, for part of that time? So, yeah, you can find me on Twitter at BAM Consults, B A M Consults. Um, you can also find me, my website is BAM Financial Consulting, www.bamfcc.com. Shoot me an email, Ashley at bamfcc.com. So I'm pretty findable, I think. I don't know of a whole lot of Ashley Kwamis uh, out there in the world. So I'm, I think I'm pretty findable. But yeah, I enjoy connecting and answering questions and um, chatting all things, you know, marriage and financial therapy. So yeah, hit me up. Well, awesome. Thank you to our new uh, rising star. And uh, thanks. <laughs> You're go, too kind. You are too kind. <laughs> go, go, uh, go follow Ashley on Twitter, buy the course and, and learn lots. Thank you again. Yeah, you're welcome. Thanks for tuning in to Standard Deviations. If you can't wait till next week for more behavioral finance insights, visit www.orion.com. All opinions expressed by Dr. Daniel Crosby and podcast guests are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinion of or endorsement by Orion and its affiliate subsidiaries and employees. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for legal, tax, and investment decisions. The opinions are based upon information the participants consider reliable.